Chapter Seven of the Great White Queen by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Seven, Samory's Stronghold. Through dense dark forests and over great open grasslands, passing several villages, we were carried forward many days, still bound and never allowed to have our hands free except during our meals. The face of Kuaga grew more brutal and fierce as we proceeded, and he urged on the carriers until we found ourselves traveling at a pace that for African natives was amazing. Omar spoke little. He was always preoccupied and thoughtful. He had told me that he now regretted having brought me with him from England, but I assured him that our misfortunes were not of our own seeking, and urged him to be of good cheer. Truth to tell, my heart was full of dark forebodings. I saw in the ugly countenance of Kuaga expressions of deadly hatred, and I knew that they were of ill portent. Yet to escape in that deadly bush, extending for hundreds and hundreds of miles, dark, monotonous, and impenetrable, meant certain death even if we eluded the watchful vigilance of this muscular negro. One day, when passing through a forest village, a half-naked savage rushed towards us brandishing his spear and uttering a loud yell, but whether expressive of hatred or joy I knew not. Suddenly, as he approached the hammock in which Omar was lying, my friend addressed him in some tongue that was strange to me, but to which the native answered readily. As I thought scars, Omar shouted to me in English a moment later, "'We have traveled away from Mo, crossed Teva's territory, and have now entered the country of the great Mohammedan chief Samory, my nation's bitterest enemy. It was he who seized my father by a ruse and sent his head back to my mother as a hideous souvenir. But what object has Kuaga in bringing us here?' I asked. "'I cannot imagine,' he answered, unless he traveled to England for the sole purpose of delivering me into the hands of our enemies. Three times within the last five years has Samory attempted to invade our country, but each time has been repulsed with a loss that has partially paralyzed his power. All along the right bank of the upper Niger his bands of hirelings and mercenaries, whom we call Sofas, are constantly raiding for slaves. Indeed, Samory's troops are the fiercest and most merciless in this country. They are the riffraff of the West Sudan, and are a terror to friend and foe, a bar to the peaceful settlement of all lands within the range of the devastating expeditions. Do they make raids towards your country? I inquired, for I had heard long ago of this notorious slave-dealing chief. Yes, constantly. They are pitiless marauders who lay waste whole kingdoms and transform populous districts into gloomy solitudes. While well, on my way from Mo to England we passed through Sadi, a large market-town at the convergence of several caravan routes, which was only three months before, a prosperous and wealthy place situated fifty miles south of our border. We found everything had been raided by the sofas, who had sacked, burned, or destroyed when they were able to take away. Heaps of cinders marked the sites of former homesteads, the ground was strewn with potsherds, rice, and other grain trodden underfoot while our horses moved forward knee-deep in ashes. The whole land, lately very rich, prosperous, and thickly peopled, was a melancholy picture of utter desolation. "'Do you think we have actually fallen into Samory's hands?' I asked. "'I fear so. But is not Kuaga Grand Vizier of Mo? Surely he would not dare to take us through the enemy's land,' I said. 
Do you not remember that when he met us at Eastbourne he forbade us to inform Mackenna of our intended departure? He answered. He had some object in securing our silence and getting us away from England secretly. It now appears more than probable that my mother has dismissed and banished him, and he has gone over to our enemy, Samory, who desires to seize our country. In that case our position is indeed serious, I observed. We must do something to escape. No, he said, we cannot escape. Let's put on a bold front, and if we find ourselves prisoners of the slave-raiding chief, I at least will show him that I am heir to the emerald throne of Mo. As each day dawned, we still held upon our way, until at length, under a broiling noonday sun, we crossed a wide stretch of fertile grassland where cattle were grazing, and there rose high before us the white fortified walls of a large town of flat-roofed, moorish-looking houses. It was, we afterlearn learnt, called Kusan, one of Samory's principal strongholds. As we approached the open gate, flanking on either side by watchtowers and guarded by soldiers wearing Arab fezes and loose white garments, a great rabble came forth to meet us. We heard the din of tom-toms beaten within the city, joyous shouts, and loud ear-piercing blasts upon those great horns formed out of elephant tusks. Thus in triumph, amid the howls and execrations of the mob, Omar, son of Sonom, and myself, were marched onward through the gate and up a steep narrow winding street where the solidly built houses were set close together to obtain the shade to the market-place. Here, amid the promiscuous firing of long flint-locked guns and quaint ancient pistols such as one sees in curiosity shops at home, a further demonstration was held, our carriers themselves infected by the popular enthusiasm, seeming also to lose their senses. They heaped upon Omar every indignity, scoffed and spat at him, while my own pale face arousing the ire of the fanatical Mohammedan populace, they denounced me as an infidel, accursed of Allah, and urged my captors to kill me and give my flesh to the dogs. Truly we were in a pitiable plight. I looked at Omar, but heedless of all their threats and jeers, he walked with princely gait. His hands were tied behind his back, his head erect, and his eyes flashed with scorn upon those who sought his death. Presently, turning sharply to the left, we found ourselves in another square which we crossed, entering a great gateway guarded by soldiers, and as soon as we were inside the heavy iron-studded doors closed with an ominous clang. I glanced round at the thick impregnable walls and knew that we were in the Kasbah, or citadel. Gaily dressed soldiers were leaning or squatting everywhere as we crossed the several courtyards, one after the other until, by the direction of one of the officials who had joined us on entering, we were led through a low-arched door, and thence a dozen soldiers who had come forward hurried us down a flight of dark, damp steps into a foul, noisome chamber below. Struggles and protestations were useless. We were pushed forward into a narrow cell lit only by a tiny crack in the paving of the court above, and the door quickly bolted upon us. "'Well, this is certainly a dire misfortune,' I said, when we had both walked round inspecting the black, dank walls of our prison. "'I wonder what fate is in store for us. Though they destroyed my jujus, they cannot invoke the curses of Zamaro upon me,' he said. "'The crocodile god will not hear any enemies of the Naya. "'But have you no idea whatever of the motive Kuwaga has had in bringing you hither?' I asked. "'Not the slightest,' he answered 
seating himself at last on the stone bench to rest. It is evident, however, that he is a traitor in the pay of Samory. On each occasion when the Moslem chief endeavored to conquer our country, it was Kuaga who assumed the generalship of our troops. It was Kuaga who fought valiantly for his queen with his own keen sword. It was Kuaga who drove back the enemy and urged our host to slaughter them without mercy. And it was Kuaga who, with fiendish hatred, put the prisoners to the torture. In him my mother had a most trusted servant. He doesn't seem very trustworthy now, I observed. It seems to me we are caught like rats in a trap. True, he said, we are beset by dangers, but may the blessings of their Allah turn to curses upon their heads. It may be that our ignominious situation will not satisfy the malice that Samory has conceived against me, but if a single hair of the head of either of us is injured, Zomara, the crocodile god, will punish those who seek our discomfiture. It occurred to me that it was all very well to speak in this strain, but as no man is a prince except in his own country, it seemed idle to expect mercy or pity. Omar was in prison for some unknown offense, and I was held captive with a well-remembered threat from Kuaga that my life should be sacrificed. For six hours we remained without food, but when the light above had quite faded three soldiers with clanging swords unbarred the door and pushed through some water in an earthen vessel and some fufu, a kind of dumpling made of mashed African potato. During the night, disturbed by vermin of all sorts, including some horrible little snakes, we slept little, and at dawn we were again visited by our captors. The next day and the next passed uneventfully. For exercise we paced ourselves times without number, and when tired would seat ourselves on the rough stone bench and calmly discuss the situation. The Naya, the mysterious great white queen, had ordered Omar to return with all haste, yet already two moons had run their course since we had landed in Africa. This troubled my companion even more than the fact of being betrayed into the hands of his enemies. The tiny streak of light that showed high above our heads grew brighter towards noon, then slowly began to decline. Before the shadows had lengthened in the court above, however, the sound of our door being unbarred aroused us from our lethargy, and a moment later three soldiers entered and told us to prepare to go before the great ruler Samory. Omar, attired only in a small garment of bark cloth, took no heed of his toilet. Therefore we at once announced our readiness to leave the loathsome place with its myriad creeping things, and it was with a feeling of intense relief that a few minutes later we ascended to the blessed light of day. Marched between a small posse of soldiers, we crossed the court to a larger and more handsome square, decorated in Arab style with horseshoe arches and wide colonnades, until at the further end a great curtain of crimson velvet was drawn aside, and we found ourselves in a spacious hall, wherein many gorgeously attired persons had assembled, and in the center of which was erected a great canopy of amaranth-colored silk supported by pillars of gold surmounted by the crescent. Beneath, reclining on a divan, slowly fanned by a dozen gaudily attired negroes, was a dark-faced full-bearded man of middle age, whose black eyes regarded us keenly as we entered. He was dressed in a robe of bright yellow silk, and in his turban there glittered a single diamond that sparkled and gleamed with a thousand iridescent rays. His fat brown hand was loaded with rings, 
and jewels glittered everywhere upon his belt, his sword, and his slippers of bright green. It was the notorious and dreaded chieftain, Samory. End of chapter 7 Recorded by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com